Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. I'm Kryn Caputo, a writer and comedian and friend to the universe with help from Moya. (laughs) With help from me, I am the Moya in question. I'm Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist, a folklorist, and uh, yeah, I fucking love the universe. We're buds. Hell yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm so excited about today's episode. Yes, uh, today's episode is going to be great, but the recording location. Yeah. Let me talk about where we are. So we are in my aunt's kitchen in her (laughs) old house. And I love being here because it's kind of where all the adults tend to gather during the party. And when I was a kid, it was always so, I always like wanted to be where the grownups were. Um, (laughs) And it's just so fun to be in just a place where you're like so loved and there's so much community. Yeah, that is really nice. Kitchens are such a cozy place. It's where the cooking happens. It's where the talking happens. Like, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of community Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a kitchen. I can feel it in in the room. Yeah, you can feel it. Like exactly. Other people's kitchens that feel like so lived in and and loved are are always a treat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
While we are sitting in this cozy kitchen, we have another bio episode for you where we dig into the life and the work of someone who helped humanity as a whole become closer to the universe by studying it for us. So today we are talking about the one and only, um, I say that, but I imagine her name is actually pretty common, (laughs) Katherine Johnson. (laughs) I think you're right. Katherine Johnson does feel like it could be a very popular name. Um, Yeah. But she was one of kind in space terms. Mm -hmm. I am very excited to learn about her life. And um, I know that, Corinne, you you did some digging into where Katherine Johnson came from. Yeah, let me tell you about um, her early life. So if anyone has seen Hidden Figures, Katherine Johnson was played by Taraji P. Henson in that movie. Mm, Love. But... The real Katherine Johnson was born August 26, 1918, in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. That's so long ago. It's a really long time ago. Wow. Um, she lived through the Great Depression. She did. She lived through a, a lot. <laughs> she she made mm. it to the new millennia. She, well, should I just spoil it and say she did pass away? I'm sorry to everyone. I'm sure you can imagine a woman who bo- was born in 1918. It's not alive today, but she lived a really long and cool life. Um, mm-hmm. So she was. Her parents are Joylette Roberta and Joshua McKinley Coleman. Um, she was the youngest of four kids, and when she was born, um, Greenbrier Greenbrier County, if I'm saying that right, in West Virginia, mm-hmm. didn't offer public schooling for Black students past the eighth grade. So the Colemans arranged for the kids to attend high school in. Um, a town called Institute, West Virginia, which is about two hours away from White Sulphur Springs. Oh, wow. So far away. Like a two-hour commute each way every day? That sucks. So what they ended up doing was like they split their time between Institute during the school year and White Sulphur Springs in the summer. Mm. And the school they went to was on the campus of West Virginia State College. And Johnson was enrolled when she was 10. So the family split their time. Mm. And then she graduated from high school at 14. Uh, which is way younger than the average high school graduate. Um, wow, what a precocious little shit. Truly. truly. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever called Katherine Johnson a precocious little shit. So. <laughs> and she seems like really um, like earnest. And, Good. Um, but she matriculated at um, West Virginia State College where she took every single math course offered after she graduated from high school. Um, So she's like the youngest student there, blew through all the math classes. One of her professors added new math courses to be taught just for Catherine to take. I'm sure other people like probably took them too, but I mean, I don't know that, but it just seems so like her, these people really wanted her to be educated and that is so lovely. Um, So she graduated at 18, um, summa cum laude in 1937. From college. Okay. Um, with degrees in mathematics and French. And she took a teaching job at a public school in Virginia. So West Virginia integrated its graduate schools in 1939. And West Virginia's state president, Dr. John W. Davis, selected Catherine and two other men to be the first black students offered spots at West Virginia University. So Catherine left her teaching job and enrolled in the graduate math program there. But at the end of the first session, she decided to leave school and start a family with her first husband. So she returned to teaching years later with her when her three daughters got older. But in 1952, 
A family member told her about open positions at the all-black West Area Computing Section at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics' Langley Laboratory, which mm-hmm. was headed... Yes, NACA. Yeah, NACA. It's a mouthful, but it's um, headed by a fellow West Virginian, um, Dorothy Vaughn. Um, and Catherine and her husband decided to move the family to Newport News, Virginia, to pursue the opportunity. And Catherine began work at Langley in the summer of 1953. Yes, yes, she did. Um, was it NASA at that point when, she, or was it still NACA? When I think she it was still started? NACA because that's what okay. NASA's website described it as too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it was it was NACA, and that was what did that stand for again? The National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And now it is NASA or the the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which so- seems much more official than like a committee, an advisory committee. I agree. I go, well, I mean, probably because it was as yeah. they got more funding and as they became more of a legit institution in the eyes of the federal government. Cool. Seems like she really loved learning Uh and like she was a little nerd. Yeah, truly. I mean, to graduate high school at 14 and then college at 18. Wild. That's hard, too. Like, you're a lot younger than the other people there. The social, like, component to it is totally different than, like, any college we probably experienced. So Right, especially back then. And as a 14-year-old. In West Virginia, yeah. <laughs> she didn't end up graduating from graduate school, I don't think. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think she did. But boy, did she do enough work that it seems like mm-hmm. she she might as well have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had a lot of experience. Uh, um, a moment of silence for all of the mostly women who have had to put their careers on hold to to raise a family because that was the default and men's not going to do it. I wish that she didn't have to do that, but I'm glad that, you know, she still, after she made that decision and after her kids grew up, she still made such a big difference in her chosen career. Yeah, she really did. I went to college at 17. And even that was hard enough because as a 17 year old, I couldn't open my own bank account. I couldn't sign my own permission waivers. I couldn't even buy my own cough medicine, my own like flu medicine. Oh, my God. And you're like on your own in a way where you need to. (laughs) Exactly. So I had to have my college roommate buy me cough syrup um, because they wouldn't sell it to me as a minor. I can't. It was hard enough at 17. I cannot imagine going at 14. I mean, and then it's like so clearly about like in pursuit of academics, which I so admire. And I'm so glad that teacher was like, "Okay, you're done with this math. Like, let's go make more math classes Mm -hmm. for you. (laughs) I love that for her. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it actually is really it sucks that we had to do this, that so many um, black Americans had to do this. But they often we often ended up having to teach ourselves and, and create opportunities for ourselves um, when they weren't made available to us by the the public sector (laughs) and the government. Yeah, damn. Good for her. Yes. So I read up about her work at NASA after she joined in 1953. But uh, I want to set the scene a little bit socially in terms of of race and and sex in the 1950s in the South. Um, You know, I I would hope that everyone listening knows it wasn't good. We can start with that baseline. It was not a good time to have melanin in your skin in the U.S. Um, So she starts in 1953. 
that is just one year before Brown v. Board of Education integrates schools across the country. Um, individual states had integrated schools earlier. So she, you know, I think West Virginia did integrate in um, like the late 30s or early 40s. But still, it wasn't national until a year after no. she joined NACA. Uh, so she was growing up in a time of segregation. She starts working at NASA in a time of segregation when people don't expect black people and definitely not black women to have this education because, uh, and, and like we just said, she and people around her had to make those opportunities. It wasn't a given that she was going to get those. Um, so segregation is still very much a thing in terms of education, in terms of what bathrooms you can use. So that scene in Hidden Figures where um, the guy, like, knocks down the bathroom sign saying that it's for whites only like that that was a thing <laughs> um, it was segregated in bathrooms in swimming pools in restaurants in water fountains um, interracial marriage was still illegal for more than another decade uh, I think loving v Virginia happened in 1966 or 1967 Martin Luther King hadn't talked about his dream yet that was gonna happen in 1963 so yeah black people and white people lived in different worlds. Um, and for Katherine Johnson to walk into NACA, to walk into this yeah. research-based space full of, of white men who had all of the opportunities given to mm -hmm. them was such a big deal. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the race side of things. But on the, on the sex side of things, it wasn't much, it wasn't better. Um, women were barred at NASA from most jobs, including research and administration. Um, they were not allowed to be astronauts. Like the NASA just decided that if you have a uterus, you can't go into space. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> of course you can't. And most women, if they worked at NASA, they were either secretaries or they were computers, meaning they did calculations in their heads or on paper or with little calculator machines, uh, checking the calculations done by the actual machine computers, which back then were still kind of unreliable um, and definitely untrusted by, by most humans. So Katherine Johnson, as a black woman, had to deal with both of these things um, mm -hmm. because intersectionality means that you're not just facing the consequences of one aspect of your identity, but of all of them. Today, 54% of NASA employees are white and just okay. a third are women. Okay. <laughs> that's, so that's, that's today. That's in, that's in well, that it was last year mm -hmm. in, in their report in 2022. Imagine... 70 years ago yeah it's really hard to imagine and also like it's not that far ago I think when we think about um the progress or lack thereof it's so weird to think of segregation as like Katherine Johnson died what two years ago like almost three mm -hmm. like th and this was her early life like she was yeah. entering her like career job and this is still happening. So this is this history is so close. You can touch it. And it's it's so still ingrained and we're still facing like the repercussions and the ripples of effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could we couldn't we couldn't make this episode without having a little no. <laughs> history lesson about the Jim Crow era, especially in the South, um, because mm -hmm. she she was born in West Virginia. Um, the Langley Center where she worked for NASA was in Virginia. So all of this is happening in the South. Yeah. It just needed to be said. Um, while at 
NASA, um, and she she worked there for more than 30 years, for 33 years, from 1953 to 1986. Katherine Johnson worked at NACA and then NASA, and she was such a valuable part of NASA. She made a lot of amazing contributions, and there are historical moments that wouldn't have happened without Katherine Johnson's help, um, which is wild to say. Like, yeah. not many people can say that. I just... I watched Forrest Gump for the first time recently. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting that to be what the movie was like, but in the way that he <laughs> seemed to be around for a lot of important moments yes. in America's history, Katherine Johnson was around for a lot of important moments in NASA's history. So I'm not going to say she was the Forrest Gump of NASA, but I will say that Forrest Gump was the Katherine Johnson of the U.S. Yes, <laughs> Forrest Gump was the Katherine Johnson of Forrest Gump. <laughs> um when she was hired in 1953, she was hired as a computer, as a like a human computer to do these calculations. Digital computers did exist, but they were really new and they weren't entirely trusted. Um, sometimes they would give wrong calculations. Sometimes they would just like black out and stop working. So uh, humans were required to check the work of the digital computers, which I find hilarious. That's so funny because I would never double check what my phone tells me. Like, <laughs> just know. like, okay, that's true. I know. <laughs> like, uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, people today, like, they cannot relate. Yeah, uh, no <laughs> to way. the idea of having to check what your computer or what your calculator says. I'll wake up and I'll ask Google the temperature and I'm like, that's what's going on. <laughs> okay. Like, sometimes just to be sure, if I'm doing a simple math problem, I'll check it on my phone. But the idea of checking something from my phone in my head that's not the no. direction that goes yeah it's like I I think I find comfort in thinking of like what the phone tells me is truth <laughs> to throw that chaotic element in it's crazy I know. um so that's where she started she started as a computer but she was just so talented she was really good at what she did and she asked a lot of questions she was really curious always trying to learn more um, and learn more about the context around her because she had a, a background in math not a background in aeronautics or astronomy or rocket launches like she didn't she wasn't trained in the stuff that they did at NACA but she learned it on the job because she was very impressive so when people noticed the impressive work she did. She got taken from the that West Computing Center that um, Dorothy Vaughn was heading, and she got moved to the Flight Research Division, uh, which is where she got to help with all of these historic missions coming out of NASA. Um, so here I have a, I have a little timeline of some of her biggest uh, contributions, starting in 1960 when she co-authored a paper with someone else in the Flight Research Division, whose name is honestly unimportant right now. Um, and then <laughs> that paper was called Determination of Azimuth Angle at Burnout for Placing a Satellite over a Selected Earth Position. Clickbaity, if you ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. If you see that headline on your newsfeed, you're, you're going to click, click on it. <laughs> uh, the Russian bots should have used titles like that if they wanted to impact the election. Uh, They're one mistake. I know. Because uh, it wasn't successful. Oops. Um, anyway, back, back to this paper, um, which follows in a long history of scientific papers with truly terrible names. But really, all this paper is doing is trying to determine uh, the best launch angle for um, a, a rocket launch if you were trying to place a satellite over a specific 
point of the Earth. So, like, if you if you want it to be over a certain latitude and longitude, mm-hmm. how what angle do you launch it at, and when? That's what the paper was. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of geometry and trigonometry and and cool math. I feel like we've probably used that so yes. much since. Yes. Yes, we absolutely have. Um, also, it was historically important because this was the first time any woman, not just a black woman, not a black person, any woman got credit for a paper coming out of this flight research division. 1960. Wow. Fuck us. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> why? Um, okay, so she co-authored that paper in 1960. The next year, in 1961, uh, is when the big moment in the movie is from. So the, the big moment where you see Katherine Johnson's use, I guess, uh, to NASA happened in the movie when Alan Shepard was going to become the first uh, American in space. This is in the 1960s during the Cold War. Russia has already launched Yuri Gagarin into space. He became the first human in space doing a full orbit around the or like at least most of an orbit around the Earth. Um, they had launched Sputnik, so they had already put satellites up in space and the U.S. was really trying to compete. Um, so the first person that we sent into any sort of space was Alan Shepard in 1961. He did a 15-minute long suborbital flight. So he didn't actually get up into low Earth orbit, uh, but he did launch in a rocket mm-hmm. up through most of the atmosphere. Um, he was up there for 15 minutes, and it was Katherine Johnson in 1961 who calculated the trajectory uh, or, or like the flight path that he would take. Whoa. So they, they launched, uh, he landed somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, and she calculated what that path would look like using a lot of geometry um, and knowledge about like what force was the rocket being propelled with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 1961. The next year in 1962 is the big moment from the movie when we're about to send our first uh, American human into orbit around the Earth. His name was John Glenn. I don't think I had ever, like, heard of him before watching the Hidden Figures movie. Like, I really didn't know anything about the history of NASA or space exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, but John Glenn was the first American to go into orbit around Earth. Uh, digital computers calculated and controlled his trajectory once he was up in space. Like, they had that all planned out. It was going to work. But John Glenn was from this generation that didn't really trust the computers. And so... That makes um, sense. <laughs> this is a quote. He asked the engineers before he would get into the rocket. He asked the, the engineers to, quote, get the girl. Aw. She was 44 years old. No. He was 41 years old. Ew. So she's in her 40s. She's older than he is. And he's telling the engineers to go get the girl. Yeah. So I don't like and that. And it's so, like double like it's so twisted too because it's clearly like i respect and trust this person more than i trust a computer Mm -hmm. and yet i need to make sure that she does not think she's better than i am (laughs) is allegedly (laughs) (laughs) so uh, the engineers go get the girl um and then this is coming from her recollection of the event but katherine johnson when she was interviewed about it said that she remembered john glenn saying if she says they're good, meaning that like the numbers, the calculations from the computer, if she says they're good, then I'm ready to go. Aww. Yeah. So I and I think that's a line in the movie too, uh, or at least it's it's uh, similar in the movie. He says that he'll only go if she does the calculation. Mm-hmm. So that that is that is accurate. But she was responsible for doing the the trajectory calculations to calculate the the flight path of uh, John Glenn's orbit around the Earth for the first time. Imagine being that trusted by 
by someone. Yeah, it's so much pressure. And I think that, I mean, I'm feeling scared thinking about it because I'm like, I would not know where to start. <laughs> like, you don't need me to do this. But she's so kind of fluent in this and mm-hmm. just seems like innately gifted that, of course, you know, you can successfully say you're you'll be safe if you do this. Yeah, by this point, she has a proven track record at NACA or NASA, um, and she has shown everyone that she's really good at math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they, they trust her to do that. Uh, she's done a, She does a couple of other things. Like, she's very heavily involved in um, getting satellites around Earth, like the, the program that we now call Landsat, she was very involved in. Uh, and then in 1969, when we finally launched people to the moon for the first time and we like this is the moment where we felt like we really won the cold war because we got humans to the moon before the russians did Catherine johnson calculated the trajectory that was necessary to sync up the apollo lunar lander with the command and service module that stays in orbit around the moon so there are two parts to this thing Um, you have the module that can house like three astronauts and that stays in orbit around the moon. And then you have a lander that will connect to the, to the module. The astronauts can then get into the lander and then it'll take them down to the moon. And when they're ready to go home, it, the lander lifts off of the moon, it connects to the module and then, and then the astronauts go home. Uh, but that's a lot that's complicated. Yeah. That seems really crazy, especially because the, um, piece that's still orbiting the moon. I don't know. I would just be like, what if I never make it back around? <laughs> or like, right? what if I miss a line and, and we'll have to get him on the next? Go- I don't know. It's just so scary. Yes. That is the scary concern. And it was Katherine Johnson's math that ensured that the module and the lander would connect. Thank God. Yeah. So like her math would figure out when they needed to launch the lander off of the moon in order to connect with the module at the right time and, and vice versa. And so it was a lot of very important math that made it possible for us to put humans on the moon for the first time. So like one one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, all possible because of Katherine Johnson's work and other people's work too. But like, mm-hmm. you know, this episode is about her. So it was her work. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, it's Moya here to give a shout out to our kind, generous patrons over at Patreon, uh, here with my phlegmy voice to do so. So first, I want to thank our latest pre-main sequence star, Dan Shields. Congratulations, Dan, on collapsing your gas cloud. I'm so proud of you. Next, I want to thank our newest M-Dwarf star, Lori Friend. Fantastic name, and I really hope you're enjoying all of that convective heat transfer in your body, Lori. And also, as always, thank you so much to our sun-like stars, Sharn Llewellyn, Finn, and Ian Williams. I really appreciate your gravitational field keeping us Earthlings in your orbit. Thank you again. And you can support us, hear your name on this pod, and make it to our patron star chart, all by supporting us on Patreon. You can find that star chart, the Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or just skip the middle site and go straight to patreon.com slash palebluepod. The first 50 people who sign up on our Patreon will be eligible to win a free signed copy of my book, The Milky Way, an Autobiography of Our Galaxy. So head on over to patreon.com slash palebluepod to help out your new favorite podcast, to hear your name on the show, to get some awesome resource lists, and maybe for a chance to win a free signed copy of my book. Either way, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Bye.
If you're loving Pale Blue Pod, and especially if you're loving Dr. Moya McTeer, you must give her other podcast, Exolore, a listen. If you didn't know, Moya is also a folklorist. I know, she's very, very cool. So if you've ever wondered about what life would be like on different planets or how writers create your favorite fictional worlds, Moya has the facts for you. On Exolore, Dr. Moya McTeer explores fictional worlds by building them with a panel of expert guests, interviewing professional world builders, and reviewing the merits of worlds that have already been built. You'll learn, you'll laugh, and you'll gain an appreciation for how special our planet really is. Exolore is on hiatus until March, which means it's the perfect time to catch up on the more than 65 episodes in the catalog. Subscribe today by searching Exolore in your podcast app or by going to exolorepod.com. So all of these calculations that she's doing, all of these trajectories that she's analyzing, uh, she's using a lot of geometry and trigonometry and calculus to do this work. But it is conceptually kind of simple what she was doing. Um, so when you when you have a, a rocket or anything that you're launching into space or if it's orbiting like the moon, for example, you want to know the position and velocity, including direction, of that object at every point in its orbit. Mm -hmm. But orbits aren't straight lines. Orbits are curves, which makes it difficult to do math because it's a lot easier to do math on straight lines. That's where a lot of the um, geometry and calculus and, and a lot of the stuff that we know, it's based on straight lines. So when you want to do calculations on an orbit, it helps to break that circular curvy orbit up into points with straight lines. So there's this one scene from the movie where Katherine Johnson is asked to find the Frenet frame of this data using... Um, and then she cuts off the person who's asking her. She's like, oh, the Gram-Schmidt orthogonalization algorithm? Yeah, I got that. <laughs> I actually prefer it to Euclidean geometry. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, I love that moment so much. Um, but Gram-Schmidt orthogonalization is this mathematical process that finds... It's called like an orthogonal space. Um, orthogonal just means perpendicular. Okay. Never so, heard that word in my life. <laughs> I know. The, um, the number of words, Corinne, that scientists and math people use when they could just use another word. Yeah. Like orthogonal, perpendicular, and normal, they all mean the same thing. <laughs> all mean the same thing. In this specific context. Um, yeah, so the orthogonalization part of that algorithm just means to to put everything in a coordinate system where stuff is perpendicular to each other. So like a straightforward three-dimensional vector space where um, all of the lines are at right angles to each other. So this, this scene where she's asked to find the Frenet frame and she says she wants to use the Gram-Schmidt orthogonalization algorithm. I really love saying that. Um, that's just fancy speak for the director of the flight research division telling Katherine Johnson that she has to find a useful coordinate system with straight lines at each point along the curve. So uh, she has to do the math to figure out what the curve trajectory would be. And then at each point along that trajectory, she has to define a new coordinate system with straight lines so that the math is easier. Whoa. She was a very smart person. Couldn't be me. <laughs> Honestly, same. I have done orthogonalizations. I have I have done this linear algebra. I've done differential calculus. Like I've done all of this shit by hand and using a computer. And I I do not remember how to do it by hand. I did it once 
No. In, in one class. And now the computers do it all for me. And I would never dream of trying to check the computer's work. No. In this way. No. Maybe that's why she lives so long, though. Her brain was <laughs> it was so sharp. <laughs> that's possible. This is a rock-solid study. If you compare my lifespan to Katherine Johnson's, it's simply because I have a phone in my hand. <laughs> no other reason. I would love to see that longitudinal study. <laughs> see, if, like, see if it has affected... I, I'm not joking. I really would love yeah. to see that study. Um, okay, so that that is um, the math that she had to use to do this uh, trajectory calculation. She also authored like 26 other papers from the, the flight research division. And by the time she retired from NASA in, in 1986, she was well-respected as a mathematician, as a, a writer, as a researcher. Like she, she, she did good work and other people recognized it, which was great. We now know Katherine Johnson's name because of the hit success of Hidden Figures, which was originally a book by Margot Lee Shetterly. The book came out in September of 2016, and the movie came out in January of 2017. Yeah. So, like, as soon as Margot Lee Shetterly was r working on this book... Someone she, bought the rights when she sold bought, the deal, yeah. yeah. Having gone through the book publication process... That is a big deal yeah. for someone to buy movie rights to your book before it's been published and before they can see how the public responds to it. Huge deal. Yeah. Um, but obviously they saw, they predicted that this was going to do really well. And it did. The book itself topped the New York Times bestseller list for weeks. Um, the movie was released just four months later um, and was basically an immediate box office hit. Yeah. It made like $80 million at the box office pretty quickly. Um, the movie was wildly successful. Yeah, I remember. And mostly accurate. Out. Yeah, and mostly accurate. It did feel like a huge deal when it came out. It was like the cultural conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the moments in, in the movie come from the book and they are accurate. There's that moment where John Glenn says he's not going to uh, launch in the rocket unless Katherine Johnson checks the equations. But um, that scene that I mentioned before where the guy nails or like he hammers down the bathroom sign, mm -hmm. that wasn't real. Um, that was that was movie magic. Yeah. Um, a lot of the a lot of the race stuff was definitely downplayed in the movie. You know, you can get into conversations about colorism here. Katherine Johnson was a, a light-skinned uh, person. And I remember reading accounts that said she would just use the, the white person bathroom without much yeah. blowback. So that bathroom scene really wasn't accurate. But um, the book brought Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson to the public's attention. Uh, after the book came out and everyone was like, oh my God, these ladies are awesome. We need to give them all of the flowers because they deserve them all. Katherine Johnson was awarded the Medal of Freedom by mm -hmm. President Obama, which is the highest award that a civilian can earn uh, or be, be awarded. Um, so people started to recognize how important Katherine Johnson was to our nation's history after the book and movie came out. And I'm, I'm glad we did. She also won a, <laughs> I looked this up, she won what's known as a Silver Snoopy Award. <laughs> and it's literally Snoopy, the cartoon no. dog, encased in silver. <laughs> oh 
Um, and he's wearing For an what? astronaut suit. And it's an award. Well, NASA's website says the silver Snoopy vest symbolizes the intent and spirit of space flight awareness. An astronaut Ooh. always presents the silver Snoopy because it is the astronaut's own award for outstanding performance. Um, so I think it's like an award that astronauts give each other or like NASA employees like give each other. So there's I mean, this is what I am quickly gathering about it. Um, so, I I mean, it's kind of like how sa- like actors love the SAG Awards because it's like your mm. peers have given you this award. Um, mm-hmm. But she did get a Silver Snoopy Award, which, you know, is given to people who've made an outstanding contribution to flight safety and success. Oh, my God. And she definitely did that. So it does look good. like cartoon. Like, obviously, it is a cartoon, but <laughs> there's something like that undercuts the significance of it because it is this like... <laughs> cartoon dog <laughs> I feel, why did they go with Snoopy like I, I would expect that to be under copywriters I know if, oh my gosh and at the bottom of the NASA website it says if you have questions or have lost your silver Snoopy award pin <laughs> please contact your contact representative <laughs> do you think if we contacted them we could trick them into sending us a silver Snoopy no because it says you will need to send a copy of your award certificate along Aww. with any paperwork that confirms that award Oh, well, just, damn it. It looks like we're going to have to contribute to space flight safety in a significant way. OK. All right. Well, we'll get on that. Maybe there's some like knockoff of it on Etsy. That- <laughs> uh, um, Corinne, do you do you remember when you saw Hidden Figures? What was that like for you to um, see the movie? I think so. It came out in 2017, like f- winter 2017, we said. That was the mm-hmm. same winter, I think. I think that was when I moved in with my now husband. Um, but it was <laughs> right around when I started working at the Space Center. So it was a really fun time for me and my space knowledge because it just felt like the whole world is opening up of like what I knew and was getting to learn. And and all, I remember all the kids who were coming to the Space Center were talking about it, too, because they were watching it at school and like teachers would prep them for the trip with us and show it in the classrooms. It was just so fun that like it to me, it really did feel like everybody was talking about this. And like mm-hmm. now everybody knows about this person. Yeah. Yeah. I that was such a beautiful day. Like I re- I remember this day cuz it was my birthday weekend. It came oh, out January yeah. 6th, 2017. So, uh with my now ex-fiance, <laughs> I <laughs> he took me to go see it for for my birthday and we went opening weekend to the Magic Johnson Theater up in Harlem, which is the only place I'll go to see anything about black people. Like I went there to see both Black Panther movies cuz because I have to. Yeah. And be- because it was opening night, the theater was packed and people were like yelling at the screen and, and cheering along the entire movie, which was beautiful. I remember what I was, I remember so much about this day. I was wearing a, a dress with moons on the skirt. Uh-huh. And over top of that, I put a, I wore a shirt, a t-shirt that said Black Girl Magic. And everyone was in such high spirits to go see this movie. And this happens to me often because I have a resting friendly face anyway. But Aww. people were like complimenting my shirt and skirt combo as I walked in. And everyone was, was just like very friendly with each other. Uh, I cried. I definitely cried yeah. during the movie. And then as I left... Um, everyone was talking about it, but I remember seeing this one little girl, this little black girl, talking with her family about how she wants to to be like Katherine Johnson when she grows up. And I just started crying all over again. That's so sweet. 
it was such a powerful moment, like that that specific moment in the theater, but also like a, a larger cultural moment to see for the for like maybe the first time three very strong, amazing examples of Black women scientists and engineers mm-hmm. in in the past. Yeah, um, that's not something that I had ever seen before, and to see that. And then to also see how it was affecting, uh, especially young black girls. Yeah, I like I'm tearing up a little just thinking yeah. about it because it was it was a really, it was a watershed moment, pun intended. Like it was it was a game changer to see this book and movie come out. Yeah. So I'm really glad that Margot Lee Shetterly wrote down uh, their stories. I'm so glad that Katherine Johnson broke the barriers that yeah. she did. Yeah, I'm going to stop talking because I'm literally <laughs> no, about really to cry. No, it really is that it, it, it just kind of proves that, like, telling those stories and showing how it can happen, especially to kids, is so impactful. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's one of the things I miss most about the Space Center of, like, of course, everything was, like, grounded in factual knowledge, but it was so fun to get kids excited about something that can feel so untouchable and so far mm-hmm. away. And so impossible. So impossible. Yeah, because if you if you can't see it, if you don't have examples yeah. of it, you you don't necessarily believe you can do it. Yeah. You know, I I was very lucky to have a mom who encouraged me to go into the sciences. And I was mm-hmm. very lucky to have found astronomy just by chance mm-hmm. in college. Not everyone is that lucky. I I didn't have examples of scientists who look like me yeah. when I was growing up, so I, I didn't think I could do it. Yeah. Um but now people do have those examples, and um, I'm very proud to to be an example yeah. for, for young young black girls coming up. But yeah, this is I'm just experiencing a lot of emotions yeah, right now. <laughs> it isn't a moving emotional thing, and it's so cool that you are kind of another great example of that. Yeah, I'm a not so hidden figure now, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully there will be many more uh, not hidden figures coming up doing amazing work in the sciences, but also in the more social side of things, making sure that we continue to push um, boundaries. Yeah. Wherever they're, wherever they exist. And we will tell their stories. Hell yeah. On this podcast. <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> as long as they're also dead, because I don't want to talk about living people. I don't want to talk about people. a living person. <laughs> it makes me nervous. Yeah, so whenever whenever we do these bio episodes, it, it should never be a spoiler if we, when, when we talk about yeah. their death. Like, <laughs> we're not going to... One day we're going to break the rule and everyone's going to be like, oh my God, they're dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we'll break the rule, but we're not going to tell you. Yeah, until you, you figure when. out what it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's that's everything I know about Katherine Johnson and her contributions to science. Well, it's perfect timing because I think the kitchen is done with food. <laughs> in the, in what I'm trying to say is the food is ready. <laughs> okay. Good. I think I think maybe we should really get some food into you, Corinne, so you can you can remember how sentences work. Yeah, I work. think yeah. that I'm a little loopy right now. <laughs> But wherever you are listening from today, I hope you remember that you are space. Bye. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. 
We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.